Reading today is from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You may be seated. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, we've finally done it. We've come to the last sermon on the Gospel of Mark. And um, I would encourage you, if you weren't able to be here uh, this morning for Sunday school, to, to go online and, and listen to what we talked about and why we're stopping it at verse 8. But uh, I'd be curious to take a poll. We're not going to do it. If you could guess when it was we actually started the first sermon in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but we are just about two or maybe three weeks shy of three years ago. Uh, it's been three years, but praise God, uh, my, uh, my, my elder and my pastor, Nick, you know, uh, is preaching alongside, and, and you're getting the whole counsel of God, so that's the great news. Uh, Genesis and Exodus is uh, right along with the New Testament in Mark. So we get to uh, put a bit of a bow on this gospel. But what I wanted to do in kind of reflecting on those beginning or that beginning uh, three years ago, which if you were here at all may not remember, I wanted to remind you of a couple things about the gospel of Mark, about this book that Mark authored. And the first one is that it was written primarily to Roman Gentiles. And we know that because he uses uh, relatively few Old Testament quotes in his, in his gospel account. Um, he, when he comes across different Jewish customs, he goes out of his way to explain those customs. Um, so that would kind of communicate that the, the Roman Gentile, they wouldn't be as familiar with those. So he gives an explanation for those Roman custom, or I'm sorry, those Jewish customs. And then also there are phrases that are said in both Aramaic and in Hebrew that he translates into Greek. For the reader as well. So we know that this account is given with that Roman Gentile in mind. And then the second thing is that this book is considered to be pretty much, even though it's authored by Mark, it's kind of the memoirs of the Apostle Peter, and that uh, the majority of the information 
uh, is coming either from Peter or observations that Mark has made in Peter's teaching, but a lot of the information that's provided is coming from Peter, and there are actually just a few words in Mark that come from Mark himself. Now, Mark authored the whole thing. What I mean is that him inserting himself in to say anything or or to make a statement of any kind is actually captured in just a few words. And if you want to uh, turn back there in Mark chapter 1, it's in the very first verse is what Mark has to say. And in Mark 1.1, this is what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That, those are Mark's words, and Mark is saying this is what he is endeavoring to do, to write the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he immediately transitioned into telling the narrative by quoting, bringing a quote that's a mixture of Isaiah, the prophets Isaiah, and of Malachi in verses 2 and 3, where it says, Uh, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of of Yahweh, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So he starts, he gives his uh, overarching plan of authoring um, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he immediately starts to talk about certainly what John the Baptist is going to do logistically. This is who John the Baptist is. This is what he's about. But really in doing that, at the same time, what Mark is doing is also communicating what he's doing with the gospel. He's bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ out to tell the story of what's happening, but at the same time, in a sense, right along with what John the Baptist does physically in the narrative, Mark is also making straight for that Roman Gentile reader the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see this this parallel kind of taking place right there out of the gate. And that is where the account starts. And so when you keep that in mind that he is looking to present this gospel message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that he's aiming it for the most part at the Roman Gentile leader, well, if we kind of look at that macro view over the entirety of the gospel of Mark and his attempt to make a clear path to connect the dots for that Roman Gentile leader— in the presentation of the gospel, what happens is you get to pretty much the peak of that goal in Mark chapter 15 and verse 39. And we looked at this before um, a week or two ago. Remember when Jesus is on the cross and the darkness had, um, uh, or Jesus had had uh, cried out and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and then in Mark 15, verse 39, it says, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So in a very real sense, what Mark set out to do right at the, right at the beginning, he says, this is my goal, to author the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, and that if we know that it's primarily written to the Roman Gentile, and we, uh, uh, then we get to this 
Roman Gentile who does in fact see Christ on the cross and declare, wow, he truly is the son of God. It's like he's reached the pinnacle of his goal right there. And yet, it's not over. It's not the end. What we have is what we looked at last time, which was the burial of Christ. And now what we have are the events that surround the resurrection. Some of you might be familiar with that Latin phrase that um, is attributed to Julius Caesar after coming back from a victory, you know, a, a, um, a resounding military victory. He comes back to report to the Roman Senate, and they asked, you know, how did it go? And what's the Latin phrase? Does anyone know? Veni, vidi, vici. I came. I saw. I conquered. He was communicating how decisively that victory was to the Roman Senate of that, of that military might. And what's interesting is in these eight verses of chapter 16, uh, the end of Mark here, we see it pretty much divided in that similar way, which is it's these women who came, it's these women who saw, and it's Jesus Christ who conquered. And so when we look at, ha- at it being divided that way, we see that in the first three verses of chapter 16, there are particular things that are described, that are being pointed out, that Mark is focusing on, that the women actually saw. Mark gives us particular details. And the first detail that we see has to do with the timing. In the Western world, you know, when we think about, um, when we think about days, you know, we, if, if we're going to be a little more precise, we, we break it off at midnight, right? That's kind of what we do. Say, well, you know, if you're looking at the calendar and, and you're wanting to, to see where yesterday ended and today started, we always go to midnight. In an informal way, we'll actually do more of kind of the sunrise thing where we say, well, in the middle of the night, even though it was one in the morning or two in the morning, we have a tendency to say, well, I got up in the middle of the night, even though when we're being a little more formal, we would say, well, early in the morning. But that's just not how we talk. But either way, our perspective as, as contemporary Westerners is to divide days kind of either by that midnight or sunrise. Well, in the Jewish culture, that's not how they divided days. It's actually the opposite. They went by sundown. And that's really helpful for us to remember that that's how they did things because as this as these events are carrying out, and we looked at some of that during the burial of Jesus, and now as we're getting into the resurrection, we see that that timing becomes important, and Mark is noting those things. So in 16 verse 1, it says, when the Sabbath was passed. That's the very first phrase, when the Sabbath was passed. So remember that these things that took place that had to do with the burial and Jesus' death itself was on a Friday, and... Um, on that day, the Sabbath is going to begin at sundown. So roughly, given the time of year, roughly a 6 p.m. type time frame. So Jesus dies on the cross. All the events of the burial have to take place on that Friday. And then when sun goes down, the Sabbath is actually beginning. So that way, by us having that in our minds, when we read what Mark is writing, when Sabbath was passed... If we follow Mark's timing, then where we land, the way that we would speak, is we land on Saturday night. 
So when the Sabbath has passed, so after sundown on Saturday, then we see these other events beginning to take place. And what happens is uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So these women went as soon as they possibly could to go get these spices. Remember that when all of this burial stuff took place and Joseph of Arimathea, remember he took courage and he went before Pilate to say, hey, can I have the body? And then once he got the body and he had to do everything to get Jesus cleaned up, to get, uh, to get his body cleaned, to get him wrapped, to get him placed into this new tomb, for all of those things to happen before that sundown hit, there was a very tight window and the window was so tight that these women were unable to go purchase spices and to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, at that particular time, there was embalming did exist, but Jews didn't do it. That was something that the Egyptians did. They participated in an embalming process, but the Jews did not do that. They didn't embalm. What they did instead is they used these fragrant ointments, and they would put them on, uh, on the cloths, on the body of the dead, to uh, show respect, to give it a better smell, to kind of cause the body, in a sense, to last a little bit longer. And so these women who were dedicated to Christ and in honoring him, uh, they went as soon as they possibly could, as soon as the Sabbath had ended on Saturday night, and they went out to purchase these spices. Now, there, of course, I think they're to be applauded for wanting to do this right away. They, they, they were presumably just, just chomping at the bit to be able to, to go get this done, which is noteworthy. However, what that does is that actually tells us a couple of things. One is it demonstrates uh, their lack of understanding of what was going to happen with Jesus because they expected him to be dead. I mean, they're in that same category as all of the apostles and disciples who also thought it was all over. They expected Jesus to be dead. That's why they even went out and bought the spices in the first place, is because they're going to the tomb expecting to find a body that they can then anoint with these spices. The second thing that it demonstrates as well is... um, uh, The second thing that it demonstrates is that they didn't pick up on the fact that Jesus actually had already been anointed. So if you remember back in Mark chapter 14, Jesus was in in the home of Simon the leper, and while he was there, there was a woman that came in, and she had that expensive flask of, of ointment, that alabaster flask, and she broke it, she poured it on his head, and in that way, um, she blessed him. And if you'll remember as well, this, this starts to show how things were moving in a hurry and how closely this, is, this account is tied to Jesus' death, is that when that takes place, um, first of all, Jesus says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So he explicitly states that this anointing is for his body beforehand, before burial, and the very next paragraph, the very next sentences after him saying that is that Judas left to go meet with the uh, religious leaders to sell him out, to betray him. So all of these things are happening back to back. So there is a lack of understanding by these women, and understandably so, that 
they believed that Jesus was going to be dead, and they did not really understand what had happened before about Jesus being anointed. Another thing that is worthy of note is that where it says after this in verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. What's fascinating is that all four gospel accounts go out of their way to reference that it is the first day of the week that, that, that this empty tomb is found. I think that that's an important fact that the gospel writers are wanting to, to make known. It's a detail that's included in all four of the gospels. And these women in this timing, so Saturday night, they, they went straight out, they bought the spices, and then first thing at dawn, they went to go anoint the body of Jesus. And so they clearly thought these things through to, to be able to go buy the spices, and then they had however much time until it was dawn, first thing in the morning, to go, uh, to go actually apply the spices. But they kind of left out one little part in their, in their planning. Who's going to open? How are they going to get to him? They, they didn't think about the fact of the stone, and so they've got this large stone problem, and they're talking about it while they're traveling to the tomb. And in verse 3, we see them talking to each other. They were saying to one another, um, who, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, it didn't keep them, apparently, from continuing to head that direction, but they realized that they had a problem on their hands. Well, after them coming, they then we see in the next couple of verses what it is that they saw. And on arrival, they saw that that problem that they were just talking about was no problem at all, right? Because the stone was rolled away. So again, I know I brought this point up in a, in a previous sermon, but we have these same women that had been following Jesus and following his ministry, the same women that were standing at a distance and that saw Jesus crucified on the cross, the same women that saw his body taken down from the cross, the same women that saw him wrapped up and the same women that saw him laid in the tomb and that saw that 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 tomb was sealed by a large stone now see that same tomb and that the stone has been rolled away. Um, Several times I've talked about my experiences in the courtroom and here's another one that that, that came to my mind. It's it's if you're serving as a witness in a court it's it's totally common for um, the prosecution or the defense, whatever, to take some piece of evidence, and they'll come up. In fact, I, probably the most regular one is is your the, the, the police officer's report, um, and they'll they'll carry it over and they'll they'll hand it to you and they'll say, "Hey, can you please identify for the record what this is?" And then um, the witness will then say, "Oh," and they'll describe what it is. Well, this is the report that I authored that relates to you know, to the incident that we're talking about. So in other words, there's a sense in which you're going on the record. It's almost like a formality. You're going on the record to say, you're the witness that's been called here and that's been sworn. You are under oath to tell the truth. You're the witness. And I want you to look at this and I want you to tell everybody else here that's watching and listening what it is that I'm handing you, what's inside this bag or what's, you know, this piece of evidence. And in a sense, what we have here are these same women that have been the ongoing witnesses of, this, of the entirety of this experience, that when they get to the point that they actually arrive back at the tomb that they knew 
where it was, because they were there the whole time. They were there, uh, you know, approximately 36 hours earlier when Jesus was placed inside that tomb. So they know exactly where the tomb is. They know that this is at dawn. There's no mistaking where it is. They get in there and they see that the stone has been rolled away. And essentially, this is by the numbers. They show up at the correct place. They see that it's that tomb that has the stone rolled away. And so Mark is including this information for those that might be doubters. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You're talking about a risen and a resurrected Savior. Why does the stone need to be rolled away? Let me tell you why it, why it wasn't rolled away. It wasn't because Jesus couldn't get out, right? They didn't need, the angel didn't need to come down and move the stone so that Jesus could make an escape. The stone was rolled away so that they could go in. Christ had already been risen. It was not for his benefit. It was not so that he could get out but it was so that he, they could get in. And we see that, that the very next words in verse 5. So after they see that the stone had been rolled away, in verse 5, the next words are, and entering the tomb. So there it is. It's open because the women were to go into the tomb. And what did they see? They see what Mark describes as a young man wearing white clothing. And this young man is what we know to be an angel, and we know that it's an angel for, well, a couple of reasons. One is just how he's described and what it is, the apparel that he's wearing, this white clothing that's consistent with other uh, descriptions of angels. Honestly, even more directly is the fact that the parallel accounts in the other Gospels actually say explicitly that it is an angel that's sitting there. And the other thing that's worthy of note, you know, these little details are helpful for us to understand what's taking place, is that Mark goes out of the the way to mention that this angel is sitting. The angel is sitting, and that's meaningful because we don't do it this way in this culture. I'm not sitting down right now. I'm standing. When we, in our culture, when we teach, for the most part, the teacher, even in a college setting, the professor is standing. But in their culture, if you're going to teach you actually sit down. So what we have here is we have an angel that's inside the tomb and he's sitting down. And I would suggest that what he's doing is preparing to teach. The angel is sitting there patiently waiting for these women to come in so that he can provide them instruction. And what is that instruction that he's going to provide? That instruction ultimately, of course, is that in verses 6 through 8, that Jesus Christ has conquered. And we see how the angel just kind of works incrementally with these women who are in there. You know, they're, they're beside themselves at this point. They've come to the tomb. The, the stone has been rolled away. They walk inside the tomb, and it's inside that the angel is sitting there, um, w- essentially waiting for them. And then the angel starts by extending kindness. It says in verse 6, And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. So he starts with kindness, and then he kind of incrementally ramps it up a little bit, and he clarifies what it is that's happened. He clarifies why they are there and what's happened. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, 
who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Now, we tend to take these kind of things for granted. You know, we read this over and over again. We have, uh, you know, the entirety of the, of the Bible in our nice leather-bound leather condition, and, and we're used to seeing all these things. But what Mark is doing, again, uh, this is just, I guess, the forensic part of my brain where Mark is not allowing even a, a, a crack of daylight into doubt to, to enter in any kind of question about where they are who they are, and what has taken place, because he goes out of his way to talk to these same women who are at the cross, the same ones that traveled to the tomb at at sun up, and that confirm that this is the tomb. Now the angel himself names who it is that they were there to see. You came here to see Jesus of Nazareth. There are, there's no room whatsoever for any misunderstandings, no mistaken identity, no other gaps to call into question. And he says he knows who they are seeking. And then there's even more. The angel then told the women to look for themselves. They have this kind of seeing is believing moment. There he is. He says, I know why you're here. You're here to see Jesus of Nazareth. And then he directs them, look for yourself. They should be able to identify even the wrapping that had been around Jesus. He said, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Remember before I talked about kind of the design of these tombs and how they were designed for families. They would have multiple kind of shelves where they would place bodies and they they would rotate family through over time. This was a fresh, a brand new tomb. They would know exactly where the body was laid. And there instead they see the wrapping that remains behind because he is not there. So he's basically saying, I have told you explicitly and now you can see for yourselves. So this incremental um, increase in in a little bit of intensity, so what he begins with kindness, hey, don't be alarmed, and then he clarifies, hey, I know why you're here, and then after saying, I know why you're here to see Jesus of Nazareth, then he gives them the news that, uh, gives them the news that Jesus has been raised, and then he points out to uh, see for yourselves, and now we get to the point in verse 7 where he provides instruction. This, in a sense, is why he's sitting. He's there to provide this instruction, and the instruction that he provides, he provides with authority. He gives them two different mandatory statements. And it says, he tells them, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. So he is telling them, he is giving them a direction. Okay, you've made it here, you've been faithful, you've come in. You know, in a sense, for for Mark, for for the reader that's going to follow this, he is tying up all of the loose ends so the reader knows, look, there is... This is exactly the tomb. This is exactly the man that was in the tomb. These are exactly the witnesses that saw it all take place. All the dots have been connected, and now these people, these women, have received this instruction to go and tell the disciples that he is raised. 
Here's another little gem that you may not have realized before. It's uh, interesting that in verse 7 right here, what it is that, she, that the angel tells the women to, to, to communicate to the disciples. He says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So that part, just as he told you, I don't know if you realize this, but the time that Jesus communicated that was actually in a private conversation between him and his apostles. That took place after they had celebrated that final Passover meal together, and then they leave Jerusalem, and they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And along the way, on that walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells the apostles for the third time that he's going to die and that he's going to be raised. And in that third account, that third time that Jesus is telling his apostles while they're on a walk, just the group of them together, minus Judas Iscariot. So we have Jesus and his closest confidants, his apostles with him when he says that he's going to die and that after three days he's going to be raised, then he actually tells them, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So there's this insider information that had taken place in this conversation between Jesus and the apostles, and now it's the angel sitting there telling the women, hey, this is what you're going to go tell those same apostles, that Jesus is raised and he's going to meet you in Galilee just like he said. If you remember the um, design, the overall design of Mark, it's kind of a three-phase thing, it's a, uh, and they're all geographically related. So you have uh, in, in the first phase, or what some people call the first act of the Gospel of Mark, you had the, uh, Jesus's Galilean ministry. It's everything that took place in, in his public ministry in the area of Galilee. Then we had that second phase of the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then we had the third phase of everything that took place in Jerusalem, and it leads up to the point that we're at now. But I don't know if you remember this, but there was a significant reason uh, or, or there was a, a mission that was taking place in that journey, in that phase two that was taking place while Jesus and his apostles were traveling down to Jerusalem after the public ministry. One of the main things that Jesus was doing, and we talked about it several times, was he was training his apostles. He was taking them under his wing. A lot of those, like, talking to them on the side to explain a lot of that was happening on the way down to Jerusalem. And Jesus was taking extra time to tell them things that clearly at the time they just didn't understand that we know later they're going to reflect back on because of the role that they are going to play as the found part of the foundation of the, of the future church are these men. And they, they were in this training phase in that second act. So you can imagine that these men, having not only witnessed in that first phase the public ministry of Jesus throughout Galilee, but they got that personal attention in that entire second phase where Jesus was taking them under his wing and he was explaining to them uh, the details of uh, theology, theology and, and caring for others and and the gospel message, and how at this point now they too believe Jesus is dead. They think he's dead. 
The women thought he was dead. That's why they were taking the ointment there. These men certainly thought he was dead. They didn't even bother going to the tomb like these women did. And so they for sure believe he's dead. So you can imagine that from their perspective, any of that training that took place was a complete and utter waste of time. What a monumental waste of time and emotion and effort for that to take place. But we know the truth that he did not fail. We see these things start to match up. Jesus did not fail. It was all part of his wonderful plan. No, he did not fail. He gained victory over the grave. And me personally, I like to also think that that, that stone being rolled away from the tomb is not just physically for the women to be able to enter into the tomb, but there's something incredible about picturing that stone being rolled away and it almost serving as a metaphor of Christ's victory over the grave. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so we see that Christ has conquered, that his mission was not a failure, and that that training that all of the uh, the apostles went through during that time was not a waste of time. And so it's the angel that's sending these women to go tell the apostles, to go tell the disciples and Peter what it is that they've seen. And here's another, uh, you know, sense of intimacy. So picture yourself as one of these disciples who is just utterly and emotionally destroyed by what you've watched your savior that you've been that you've been following and listening to his teaching daily to watch him crucified on the cross to believe that he's dead and then to hear the news that not only is Jesus alive not only is he going to do what he said but that thing that he said he's going to do is to meet you in Galilee in other words He's telling them. It's like the first message they get to hear is not only that he's alive, he's going to meet you. He, Jesus didn't just like train the next, his, his, his successors and then walk away into retirement. He is alive and he is going to be rejoined with them because they are his family. That is part of the message. And then what goes hand in hand with that intimacy that Jesus was, that the angel was communicating that, hey, Jesus is going to get back together. He's going to rejoin them in Galilee, just like he said he was, is look at the wording of the message that the angel gave the women to carry. It says, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. Now, isn't that interesting? There's no question in our mind today that Peter was a disciple or that Peter was an apostle. And I mean, he's kind of viewed as kind of the, the chairman, in a sense, of that group. And yet, the message that the angel told the women to carry was go tell the disciples and Peter. And I believe that what God is doing through the angel and through these women in communicating, go tell the disciples and Peter, is he is extending love to Peter. Think about the last account we had of Peter. Complete betrayal. 
He denied Jesus three times. In fact, on the third time, he's basically cursing Jesus. And at the very moment that he's cursing Jesus, he also sees Jesus seeing him curse him. And then the rooster crows. That's Peter's last experience in all of this, because then we transition to everything that took place with Christ. So you can imagine, at least to some extent, the emotion that Peter had to have been experiencing that at that time. For all we know, one of the reasons that she had to tell the disciples and Peter is because Peter wouldn't even rejoin the, the other disciples. We don't know. Maybe he felt so much guilt over what he did, because we know that he wept bitterly. Maybe he could not even bring himself to look at his fellow apostles, to look them in the eye. John was there. Peter knew, and Peter comes clean and tells the most, uh, intri- or, or the most detailed account about that betrayal in Mark, because remember, Mark is basically giving Peter's, Peter's account, so it has the most detail. He's, he's not about keeping it to himself, but Maybe he couldn't even possibly handle being around the other apostles, knowing what it is that he did. Maybe as well as that assurance, it's that Jesus wanted to communicate through the angel and through these women an assurance to Peter that he wasn't the same as Judas. Maybe Peter is thinking to himself, how am I any different? I know what Judas did, and Judas sold him out. Did I do the same thing? I mean, the, just the emotional turmoil, and yet we see the care that's taken. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Yes, Peter, you are invited. Yes, Peter, you are included. Yes, Peter, I love you. Yes, Peter, I forgive you. And you know the exchange that's going to take place once they're in person, But there is no question then, if there had been prior to this, like, well, with all this great news, do we include Peter in on this? Yes. Peter gets the reassurance that he is also going to be reunited physically with Jesus in Galilee. And then in our final verse there, in verse 8, we see that the women are dumbfounded. Basically, they're overwhelmed over, over all of this. And what do they do? They went out, they fled from the tomb, trembling in astonishment had seized them, for they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It almost seems like right there that the women were disobedient. The angel told them, go and tell, and yet the very next words say that they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's not what happened. We know from the other parallel accounts that they were faithful in going and reporting back to the uh, disciples exactly what had happened. But what Mark is communicating here is that these women did not mess around. They did not go and tell other friends. They didn't go tell um, other peripheral disciples. They didn't stop in Jerusalem to talk about what they had seen. They didn't pass go. They did not collect $200. They went straight to obey and to deliver that message. But I love the way that Mark did this because Mark himself, and it's believed that Mark is the first of the four Gospels, the oldest of the Gospels to exist. And here, just as 
Mark wasted no time in beginning his gospel account. He doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus and, you know, the angel coming to Mary and this kind of longer lead up to what's going to happen. He starts out right away within the first few verses of Jesus's public ministry, and we already know what his goal was. His goal was to describe the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and particularly to communicate that to the Roman Gentile, and then he gets all the way up to that point in, in, 15, in chapter 15 where it's the Roman centurion that says, truly, this is the Son of God, but then it continues on past that. And if all Mark is doing, if all he's doing is authoring a historical account of some kind and just wanting to say, hey, just so you know, there is this guy named Jesus, and here's what kind of went, happened with him, and here's a historical narrative with it, this would be a jarring, I would even say a disappointing ending. It seems like, well, okay, so they hear this news and these women run away and don't say anything. How, how unsatisfying, how dissatisfying that is. But that was not Mark's goal. Mark's goal was to author the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we know that it didn't stop there because after he gets to that pinnacle of the Roman centurion saying, this really is the Son of God, it keeps going past there because this message is coming to you. It doesn't just stop for that Roman Gentile. It's actually coming to you. Mark intentionally leaves this cliffhanger right there because he is essentially saying, you've read the account. I've laid it out for you. You've read about the life of Jesus. You've read about the miracles that he performed. You've heard witnesses to his ministry and to his death. And guess what? The tomb is empty. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond to the fact that there is an empty tomb? The end of the scene that Mark creates here for the reader is that all of this stuff happens, it gets to the point of an empty tomb, and then it's like all we're now left with after we hear the truth of what the angel is reporting, that Christ has risen, is we just see the backsides of these women running out of there, trembling and astonished. That's the picture we get. And then it basically fades to black. What, what are you going to do about that truth? Your eternal destiny depends on your response to the truth of the empty tomb. It actually happened, and you can ignore it at your own peril, or you can repent and believe. This empty tomb has a couple of things to say as well to my brothers and sisters in Christ here who have already embraced this truth, that know this uh, to be a fact. And the first thing that I want you to take from this truth is that the assurance of God's promises. There are promises laced throughout scriptures that begin in the Old Testament and carry all the way into the New Testament. People make bumper stickers out of God's promises and signs out of God's promises. Some of you may have them hanging, framed in your own house. But you know how we can know, one way we can know absolutely that God is a God of his word and that he is a God that keeps his promises, it's because the tomb is empty. It's because the tomb is empty. 
Every promise, in a sense, it's almost like that uh, certification. It's that embossment that comes onto a, a certified document. It doesn't make the thing true. It, it's Because it's true, it gets certified. And in a sense, for us and from our perspective, we can look at this truth that Mark has detailed out for us that the tomb is empty. And because of that, we can know with certainty that Jesus was raised from the grave. He is dwelling in us. What can man do to me? The tomb is empty. What can man do to me? Nothing. Nothing. There is no burden that you are carrying. There is no situation that you're in. There is no difficulty that is so great that you cannot look at the tomb and, and realize that it being empty, that God is not going to take care of you. When you look at that tomb, you can know, okay, wait a minute. From the beginning verses, from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, when he made that promise, he followed through all the way to the point of an empty tomb. So you know that he is going to keep the promise of caring for you. The second thing that I want you to take away from the empty tomb is that even though you can rest and have great peace and picture the empty tomb and know that God is at work and that he is a God that keeps his promises, what that does not mean is that you get to coast. It does not mean, oh, well, there's an empty tomb, so now all we're doing is biding our time. The Christian doesn't coast. The Christian doesn't tread water. The Christian isn't in in cruise control. The Christian, you and I, should be like these women, frankly, who are running out of there trembling and astonished to carry out what it is that they've been told to do. And what it is, uh, I, want to, uh, I want to point out Matthew 24, verses 44 to 45, where it says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. In other words, the one who is the faithful and wise servant is the servant that is found when the master returns, so doing when he comes. The servant, the empty tomb for the believer, is a reminder that we have a job to tell everyone else that the tomb is empty. May God help us to rest in the assurance that the tomb is empty, yet may when he returns him find us working to tell the rest of the world of that same truth. Join me in in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you that you are a God that keeps promises. Thank you that when we are tempted to our greatest moments of anxiety, when it seems like the world is completely off the rails, that we don't have to rely on our own strength 
to get it back on the rails. Lord, it's all going according to your plan, just as it all, all went exactly according to your plan to the point of Christ being crucified so that it might happen that on the first day of the week, these women might find an empty tomb. Praise you, Lord, for that tomb and that it was empty. In Christ's name, amen.